morning. Good morning. If you're watching online, if you're online, you may not have seen it, but we had a significant uh, barrier broken this morning. Every once in a while, something happens on a Sunday morning that I think is a first. And I think Adam, who did a great job with the call to worship this morning, I think he broke the Puma barrier this morning. He had his Puma shoes on. I think that might be the first call to worship done in Puma. So Adam, wherever you went, great. That was great. So I want to just uh, give you a little forecast where we're going uh, with with sermons. Um, Two Sundays from today, the first Sunday in January, January 3rd, we're going to begin a new extended series. We're going to be uh, going through the, Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, so the, the letter known as Second Corinthians. We're entitling this series, Old Made New. And the, the subtitle is, How the Gospel Radically Changes a Church's Leaders, Members, and Mission. This is a wonderful uh, uh, window into how the gospel works its way out in the life of a local church. It's a very personal letter. It's got, as we go through it, you'll find many verses that you, if you've been a Christian for a while, that you're familiar with, that you may have memorized. I want to encourage you, have got a couple weeks till we start this series. If you can read through this letter two or three times before, then it'll, it'll help prepare you for the series. And one of the themes in here that's so timely is this letter brings home over and over again how suffering reveals God's glory and strength. I think it'll be timely and encouraging. So that's January 3rd. This coming Sunday, December 27th, we're going to get to hear from Will Klotz, who was at one time, Will and Chelsea, members of our church. They then went to Sojourn Church and went out from there and planted New City Fellowship, and um, where he's been, been pastoring in Manassas for a number of years. Uh, and so we're going to have a chance to hear Will preach this coming Sunday. And then that brings us to today. Today is the fourth uh, of five messages in our Songs of Advent series, uh, Christmas Eve being the, the, the fifth installment in the series. And uh, that uh, message will be entitled Joy to the World. What we've been doing is taking well-known Christmas songs and then preaching uh, from texts that th- those songs are probably inspired by and that those songs sort of illustrate. And so this morning's passage, as the title is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the passage is Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, this may be familiar ground, these, these verses. And I was thinking this week, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it's like a favorite restaurant. It's just one of those places you can go back to over and over and over and you never get tired of it. And there's always something new and amazing to experience. So that's what's ahead for us this morning. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, and Grace Vanderham is going to read the passage for us. So, Grace, thank you. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you, Grace. Let's pray.
Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come. So we have sung this morning, O God, and so we now ask and appeal. We have sung, behold him, and we ask, Holy Spirit, give us grace, give us eyes of our hearts to by faith see Jesus Christ, him incarnate, Jesus Christ, him, our Redeemer and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. I pray for a work to enable us to see and delight in and and grasp and be gripped by the glories of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So as uh, has been mentioned, here we are the Sunday before Christmas and um, maybe just pause to say, what's got our attention this morning? Oftentimes this Sunday before Christmas, we can find ourselves in the swirl of shopping and presents or maybe looking forward to some time off or thinking about vaccines and viruses and family that you will see or won't see or what you're going to get to eat on Christmas Day or whatever it might be. And I just find every year it's so easy to slide into Christmas without really being stirred by the incredible realities that Christmas points us to. The messages that we've been hearing through this Advent series remind us of this. The angel in Luke chapter 2 says to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. You hear that? Great joy that will be for all the people. We're in that, for all the people. What is that great news? That good news, it brings great joy. It's that the Savior has come. The Savior has been born. Later in that same chapter, this this man, Simeon, who's waited maybe for years to be able to see the Savior, actually gets to hold him in his arms. And he says these words. He says, Lord, now I can go home in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. The Savior's been born. My eyes, he's holding this baby, Jesus. My eyes have seen your salvation. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Behold is a seeing word. Behold him, that song we sang, it's a a seeing word. So we want to ask this morning, I want to ask this morning, are you seeing him? Are you beholding him? Because, as Kenneth mentioned a moment ago, Christmas isn't ultimately about presents or Santa Claus, but Christmas is about Christ coming into the world as the greatest gift ever. To save us, he comes to save us from our sinful rebellion against God. He comes to pay the price to set us free from guilt and condemnation so that we can know God as our Father. (coughs) We want to remember who Jesus is. We want to remember what he did But we also want to remember why he did what he did. What is it that brought Jesus from heaven to earth and from earth to a cross? What was the Lord's attitude? What was his thinking? What was his mindset that took him on that journey? You might ask a friend, hey, what do you have in mind for that party? When you ask that question, you're saying, uh, give me some insight into kind of what you're thinking. 
What's your idea? What's your plan? What's your intention? What's your attitude about all of this? Well, that's what we want to ask about the incarnation, about Christmas. What was Jesus' mindset that resulted in Christmas and the incarnation? And what would happen if we had that same attitude, that same mindset, that same way of thinking, and that became our way of thinking and living as well? I know of, I know of no song that, that works through these things better than Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I know of no passage of Scripture that sort of pulls back the curtain into the thinking that our Lord had to bring him to earth than Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Here we have a window into not only what he did, but why he did it. So we're going to ask three questions of Philippians 2, 5 to 11 this morning. First, we'll spend most of our time on this first question. What is the mind of Christ? What is it? When it says in verse 5, look at your Bible there. Keep your Bibles open for this, please. Look at verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? What is it? What is this mind of Christ? If you had to define it, if you were going to explain it to one of your children or somebody at work asked you, what is the, you're a Christian, what is the mind of Christ? What, what is it? Okay, so that's the first and most important question. Second, how can we have that mind ourselves? And then third, what, what difference can this make if we really believe this? If this is really true and we apprehend this, what difference can it make in our lives? So first, what is the mind of Christ? Now, I want you to put your seatbelts on because these few verses are densely packed. They're probably an early Christian hymn and verses 6 to 11 move faster and take us on a more dramatic ride than any roller coaster you'll ever be on. In verse 6, we have Christ in eternity, before creation and up to the incarnation. Verse 7, we have the incarnation, that which we celebrate at Christmas. Verse 8, we have his 33 years on earth leading to the cross. And then verses 9 to 11 are his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and, and, and enthronement, which has begun and will continue for all eternity. So we begin in eternity past and we end in eternity future, if you will. These six verses give you all of history in six verses, give you God's plan of redemption in six verses. If you're trying to explain these, these things to a, one of your children or to somebody who isn't a Christian, here is all of history in six verses. Verses. We get a window in these verses into this mind of Christ. And we can really access the mind of Christ through two words. The two action words, the two verbs that are in this passage. Verse 7, he emptied himself. And then verse 8, he humbled himself. Those two words are going to give us an entry into understanding what Jesus' thinking was. Jesus takes the down escalator, the ultimate down escalator, from heaven to earth, from God to this God incarnate, veiled in flesh, and then to the cross. Why does he do this? What was his thinking that led him on that journey? So come with me. Let's take a look at the mind of Christ. Look at verse 7 with me, please. It says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this verse, actually verses 6, 7, and 8 are very difficult to translate. If you read 
a number of good English versions from New American Standard to Christian uh, Standard uh, or, or, or the um, New International Version or uh, the New Living Translation, you'll find there's quite a wide range of um, words, English words that are used to translate these few verses. And part of the reason for that is the language here is trying to describe the majesty and the mind of our infinite God. It's very difficult to do. It's the finite trying to apprehend the infinite. But to understand what it means for Jesus to empty himself or to make himself nothing, as another translation says, we have to understand the scene. What sets that up? Well, and that's verse 6. So look back, back with me at verse 6. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here is God, the triune God in eternity past, the second person of the Trinity, there in all the fullness of his deity. And it says here that he is in the form of God. What does that mean? The Greek word here is morphe. We get the word morphology from that. I'll give you an example. What's the morphology? What's the form of maple trees? Well, maple trees have those little, the, their fruit, they don't have pine cones, right? They have those little helicopters, you know, that fly around in the spring. Those are called samaras. That's the form of the fruit on a maple tree. Maple trees don't have needles. They have uh, leaves that are palmately veined, like the, like the palm of my hand with these lobes. That's the form of a maple tree. That's its morphology. That's, those are the essential characteristics of maple trees. What's the essential characteristic of God? He was in the form, the morphe, the essential characteristic of God. What are those essential characteristics? Well, remember that God, apart from the incarnation, God has no body. God is not a physical being. God is spirit. So we're not talking about arms and legs and teeth and hair. When we talk about the form of God, we're talking about his essential characteristics that God is infinite. God is glorious. God is never changing. God is everywhere present without beginning or end. Wise, holy, I could go on. Those are the morphe, those are essential characteristics of God. And Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he has all those qualities. But look again at verse 6. He does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form, morphe, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself and becomes a human being. Now, what does this mean? He empties himself and takes on the morphe, the form of a servant. Well, that word servant here is this Greek word doulos. We looked at this word a few weeks ago. If you lived in the first century and you said, where is the doulos, you would point to a slave. That's the word that was used for slaves in the Roman Empire. People without rights or privileges were slaves and they were called Doulos, douloi. And Jesus here takes on that form. God, infinite, glorious, takes on the form of a servant. It says he empties himself and takes on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of a human being. What does this mean? Does it mean he's no longer God and he's moved, morphed from one thing to another? No, that, that's not what it means. When it says he empties himself, it doesn't mean he disappears. It doesn't mean he ceases ceases to exist, 
what it means is that without becoming less than he is, he pours himself into the form of a human being. He becomes one of us. When you see this word emptying, he empties himself. Think of it not so much as pouring out so there's nothing left, but as pouring into a form. Let me try to give you an example. This, no example works perfectly because we're talking about God here. But think about our friend Kwaku Opong, who's a member of our church, and he, he drives for FedEx. That's his job. That's what he does. So Kwaku, if you, if you know him, he's funny, he's bright, he's articulate, he's a husband, he's a father, he's many things. But when he goes to work, he puts on, you know that FedEx uniform, right? He pours himself into a purple uniform and takes on the form of a driver for FedEx. That's what he's doing. Jesus pours himself into our humanity. He doesn't become less than he already was, but he adds something to what he already was. He lays aside my, oh, I love this line in our song, mild he lays his glory by. Still there, but it's laid aside, it's veiled for a time. He doesn't lose his glory, but he sets it aside for a time. Why? Why would Jesus do this? What is his mindset and his thinking? He's in the form of God, but he lays this aside. Why does he do this? What's the purpose of it? He becomes one of us in order to save us from our sins and to bring us back to God. That's why he's doing it. His attitude and his mindset is one to set aside his privileges for a time in order to bring us the advantage and the privilege of moving from being alienated to God to being adopted by God. He does this for us and for our salvation. We sing, God and sinners reconciled. That was only made possible because he emptied himself. And then it says in verse 8, he humbled himself. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just slow down. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, God himself. And it says he humbled himself. Does it surprise you that God is humble? How can God be humble? How can God humble himself? God has no sin to repent of, nothing to apologize for. He's never been humbled like we can be maybe by our bad behavior or by getting a bad test score or something like this. But God the Son humbles himself. How? Well, this word humble, this verb to humble means to lower. We see it in Luke 3, 5. Every mountain and hill shall be humbled, shall be made lower. Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humbled. Matthew 23.12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, brought lower, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the Son of God is taking the down escalator. He's taking the way down to a lower place. And he's not only doing that, but this is remarkable. It says he becomes obedient Obedience, you hear that word, obedience, submission, that can make the hair stand up on the back of our necks sometimes. We just, we just oftentimes don't, don't like that, the sound of those and the feeling of those words, but here is Christ becoming obedient. Who does Jesus obey? Read the gospel stories. You see he obeys his parents. 
He obeys Caesar and pays his taxes. He obeys the Father. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And he wonderfully obeys the law. He keeps the law perfectly. He loves God and his neighbor without fail. He fulfills all the righteousness of the law so that in this marvelous exchange that takes place through his death on the cross, our sin can become his and his righteousness can become ours. And how far does his obedience go? How far does it stretch? You know how it works with obedience. Obedience and submission are great when you like everything that's going on and you like the people that, are, that you have to obey and, and submit to, right? It's when you don't like what they're saying or agree with them. That's when the test comes. It's when it's hard that the test comes and Jesus obeys all the way to the cross, all the way to the point of death, all the way to a dreadful, humiliating, excruciating death on a cross. He obeys that far. All the way to the end, he trusts and obeys the Father. In the garden, Father, is there any other way this cup could be taken from me? No, he obeys all the way to the end. We see the mind of Christ when we see that Jesus denies himself, takes up his cross, and obeys the Father's will. Again, why? What is the mind of Christ here? It's humble service of others for our salvation and the glory of God. See, the, the mind of Adam is quite different, isn't it? The mind of Adam is disobedience that brings a curse on all mankind. And we live in those thorns and thistles, don't we? You don't need me to, to remind you how difficult life can be. That's all the product of disobedience to God. That's the mind of Adam. There is no vaccine for that disobedience. But there's a way out. Jesus' obedience brings the blessing of rescue to all who come to him. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's, Adam's, disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, see how this works? The many will be made righteous. This is the mind of Christ that brings us about. So what is the mind of Christ? Let me just try to give you a, a, a definition, something you can sort of hang on to. The mind of Christ, it's his mindset, it's his attitude, it's his way of thinking, it's his way of approaching these things. And, and what is it? It's to set aside his advantages in order to humbly serve others for the glory of God. He sets aside what he can be, his rights and privileges and advantages, in order to humbly serve us, to bring us salvation for us, but also for the glory of God, driven by, primarily led by his love for and obedience to the Father. It's his mindset or attitude to set aside whatever rights and privileges he might have in order to humbly serve us. Christmas, Easter, for the glory of God. He empties himself into humanity. He becomes one of us. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, for us and for our salvation. Isn't that amazing? Can you, can you see this? Is, this? is this sinking in? Can, can, you, can you behold this? What is the Son of God like? He doesn't use his power or his advantages selfishly. 
How often do we see this? Someone becomes the, the leader of a country. Someone becomes the leader of a company. And they use that position selfishly. They use it to get rich. They line their pockets. They grab everything they can for themselves. That is not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is a heart of sacrificial love. He gives himself up. He takes the down escalator for the rescue of creatures like us. No wonder that we sing glory to the newborn king. And you know, none of this is lost on the father who has now highly exalted the one who emptied himself and humbled himself. We've been looking at the mind of Christ. Look with me back in our passage at verse 9. I want you to see the mind of the Father about Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The Father is so excited about what the Son has done, about who the Son is. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' glory was veiled when he was on earth. People didn't look at him and know that he was God. There was no halo around his head. Simeon, there wasn't, it wasn't clear who the baby was. The shepherds had to be told precisely where to find him. When Judas came with people to arrest him in the garden, he had to give a signal so they would know who Jesus was. His glory was veiled. He laid that glory aside, but no longer. His glory will be revealed to every creature who's ever lived. Jesus will be revealed as the highest and the greatest And the one who is worthy to be worshipped and honored with the name that is above every name. Oh, come, let us adore him. Can you behold him? Can you see him? Do you have a glimpse of what this one will be when he returns in glory, power, bringing his kingdom with him? What is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is this mindset or attitude to set aside his advantages and humbly serve others for the glory of God. How can we have this mind? How can we live this way? That's the call in the passage. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, literally in yourselves, in your church. Have this mind. Well, how, how can we do that? Well, let me just say simply, you can't. It's not possible. You see, left to ourselves, we embrace a gospel of self-interest, self-gratification, self-fulfillment. We never take the down escalator left to ourselves. And this is exactly what Jesus comes to save us from. He comes to save us from the consequences of our mutiny against a holy God. He comes to give us a new life, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. We need a completely new start in order to have the mind of Christ. And this is precisely why Christmas is such good news. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor. He took the down escalator so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. How? How are we rich in Christ? 
We are rich with new hearts. We are rich with new desires. We are rich to be welcomed into God's family. We are rich in that God has begun a new and good work in us and he will complete it at the day of Christ's return. We have a part to play in this. This doesn't only happen to us, but this is something that we participate in. And so we work out this salvation with fear and trembling. How can we work out this mind of Christ? How can we grow in having the mind of Christ so that tomorrow it might be a little more than we have today and next week a little more than this week and next year a little more than this year? Well, very simple. Ask God. Ask him to give you the mind of Christ. Pray, seek this, appeal to God for this. And then press on to know this Jesus. The best way to have the mind of Christ is to see him, to behold him. For chapter 3 and verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not just knowing about him, knowing him, seeing him as we read scripture. Singing about him as we sing our songs, meditating about him, praying uh, to him and, and, and over his, his mind and what he's about, having fellowship about, about these things. And then what happens if Tuesday or Christmas Eve or next year you find yourself in your day, in your week, in your family, at home, the job, driving, you say, what would it look like if right now I had the mind of Christ? What would it look like? How could things be different if right here I could have not the mind of Adam, not the mind that comes naturally to me, but the transformed, spirit-empowered, kingdom of God-driven, glory of God-focused mind of Christ. If you can bring that into your week, it will change the way you live. And how? What difference will it make? Well, you see it around you if you hang around Christians. And isn't it lovely when you see this? You see the mind of Christ in action. Isn't it sweet? You see, a, see some foster parents open up their home, their busy lives, to just welcome in one more child. It's the mind of Christ. You see missionaries like Dean and Denise Adamek, Rancho 3M, Guadalupe, Mexico, who give up the advantages of life here, take the down escalator in our, from our country to bring the good news to impoverished, at-risk, and orphan children where they live. You see the mind of Christ in the youth group. See that teen who gives up the advantage of hanging around with the cool kids and reaches out to that one person that nobody else seems to notice or care about. Isn't that sweet? You see the mind of Christ. You see it at work, don't you? It's the end of the day. Everybody's getting ready to go home and that email comes in and somebody's going to have to stay late. Hmm. Who's going to do it? Gets real quiet. I wonder in that moment if you could ask yourself, Holy Spirit, help me. What does it look like to have the mind of Christ here? Could be a transforming moment. You know, it works out in church too. That's actually the application we have right here. Look back in verse 5. Have this mind in your church. Have this mind in Philippi. Have this mind at Redeeming Grace Church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know that churches that have the mind of Christ, they can hold together no matter what. This was a church that was in danger of splintering as a result of oppression and persecution in their city. And Paul, their church planter, was in prison in Rome. But 
His appeal here is that if you can have the mind of Christ, you can stick together no matter what. By the power of the Spirit, we can learn to count others more significant than ourselves. Verse 3. By the power of the Spirit, we can look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 4. When people in church set aside their rights and their advantages and seek out the interests of others, you know, churches like that can hold fast against all kinds of trials. And all kinds of pressures. And I see so much of that going on here. And it's so encouraging. And I want to encourage you to keep it up. Because the pressure's on. We live in unusually pressure-filled times in North America for churches. But churches that have the mind of Christ are going to thrive during these times. If we have the mind of Christ, we can stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We can do that. That's right there in chapter 1, verse 27. This passage can make a difference in our congregation today for the rest of 2020 and 2021 and Lord willing for years and decades to come. This passage can make a a remarkable, incredible difference amongst us. But I want to leave us not thinking about our church. I want to leave us thinking in one other direction. There's another application for this passage. Slow down, think with me now. It's Christmas. When we think of the Son of God in the form of God, with all the advantages and rights and privileges of God, And how he emptied himself and humbled himself to become our Savior. Do you know, I think what comes naturally when you can see that is to follow the Father's lead and say, Oh, Jesus, how we love you! Hallelujah, what a Savior! We bend our knees in worship. We lift our voices in song. We tell God and we tell the people in our world that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's our Savior. He's our King. And He's coming back. And and so the direction of application that I want to leave us with this morning, most importantly, is worship. If the band would come back up, It would be good for us to stand together, and you can stand with me now. And it would be good if whatever beholding, whatever seeing is going on in our hearts, if we can bring that back to the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. Hear verse 3 as the band assembles. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Have you experienced the second birth? Have you seen the Savior? Do you know what it means to be raised and brought into the kingdom of God? Then let us declare with the angels, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Let's lift our voices in song.